We're going to take our lesson this morning out of uh, the book of John. And uh, let me uh, double tap and I'll get over there. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and this morning we're going to start with the ninth verse. Now before we get into that, I'll, I'll just say this is a very familiar... Uh, well, we, I, you say this a lot. For people who are in church a lot, a lot of Scripture is very familiar reading. But this is reading that will probably be familiar to, to some people who aren't because it's uh, such a common, uh, such a common uh, subset of Scripture. And uh, we're going to be looking at the woman at the well this morning, John chapter 4, starting with verse 9, the woman at the well. Uh, and so Jesus is traveling, and he's come to, to the well there in Samaria, uh, also known as Jacob's well. And, uh, and there he, uh, he's going to have this interaction with this lady, and, uh, and he's going to demonstrate to her, and he's going to preach to her salvation uh, and everlasting life to her uh, and how she can acquire it. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, because we are living in a day and an age and a time when uh, when the people are looking for remedies everywhere, on every hand and every corner, and they're looking for it in places where they just can't find fulfillment. Uh, I talked about uh, the day and age. Somebody asked me this this week while I was working, and uh, and I can't remember who it was. It was just a conversation that we had in passing. And, uh, and they were just talking about how big houses are getting nowadays. Uh, and, uh, and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they just keep getting filled with more and more and more stuff. But people never seem emptier now than they ever, than at any time in the recent future, do they? They just, they're, they're unhappy. They're dissatisfied. Because you know what? All the things in the world can't make you happy. <laughs> happiness, you can't buy, as the old saying goes, you can't buy happiness on the shelf at a store, right? Uh, you can't buy love on the shelf of the store. These are things that are uh, that are uh, priceless. Uh, and so Jesus is going to preach to this woman. He's going to teach this woman how she can be saved, how she can really be um, fulfilled. Uh, and obviously the first thing she's got to get corrected is she's got to get a relationship with God right. Uh, and so uh, if you're here today and you don't have that relationship with God right, we would certainly pray that uh, something could be said or done in this service um, that could cause you to understand that you, like this woman here that's going to uh, have this interaction with the Lord, ha have got to acknowledge some things uh, that are true, uh, and you've got to seek forgiveness for those things, uh, and you've got to ask God for mercy for those things, and so we're going to touch on that here. And so starting in verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest me, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? Jesus had come to the well. He's got nothing to draw with, and uh, and he's asked for a drink of water. Uh, and and she, rec she looks at him, and, uh, and she says, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samarian. And so people talk about, well, Jesus, there racism in the Bible. Sure, there's racism uh, in the Bible, because the Jews, they, they had nothing to do with the Samaritans. The Bible tells us that the Jews viewed the Samaritans as abominable, right? They were an abomination to them. Uh, and so we look here, and she says, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is, uh, who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? 
uh, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children and his cattle? The, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. She, wanted, she just wanted to be satisfied, didn't she? <laughs> Contentment with godliness is great gain. Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou saidst truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And I want to stop right there. I actually went one, one verse further than I intended on. Uh, intended to stop where she said, Sir, I, per- I perceive that thou art a prophet. And, uh, and I want to start with that back half first. Because what was it about Jesus and the interaction that she had with him that caused her to look at him and say the words, I perceive that thou art a prophet. It's because he looked at her and he told her what her sins were, didn't he? You see, this is something that you don't really see acknowledged much anymore. We still acknowledge it here. um, But even though we may acknowledge it when we assemble together, oftentimes when we're in our daily routine lives, we don't acknowledge the omniscience of God, do we? The omniscience of God meaning that God is all-knowing and and, uh, and he sees everything and that there's nothing that is uh, done or said that God doesn't know about. Uh, uh, Spurgeon... Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he, he, there's a, there's a quotation of Spurgeon, and I love this quotation of Spurgeon, even though it causes me great angst and consternation, right? But, uh, the, but Spurgeon had a quote that he would use concerning the omniscience of God, and you can see this played out in scriptures many times, especially in the days when Christ was in the world, and, and it is this. Christ would look at them and it would say, and it says that he perceived their thoughts. He knew their thoughts before they ever spoke a word. And so Spurgeon's uh, quote goes like this, thought, uh, not even necessarily the act of speaking, but just the act of thinking something is speech before God. Now, if we really apply that to our life, then we're going to really kind of change the way we think. Right, The verse of scripture that we used this morning, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of the living God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Uh, that would probably be applied uh, to our thoughts a lot of times and, and say, Lord, I, 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 you know, 
I know I'm not thinking the way I'm supposed to be thinking right now. Help me to correct this. And it's going to be a process for us. Uh, for God, he can change it like that. Uh, actually, God never has those kind of thoughts. But, but we look at this here. And God, uh, or Jesus here, and Jesus was God in the flesh, but, uh, but the woman acknowledged that she had a need of the living water that Jesus had, had, had presented her, didn't she? She recognized that he had something to offer her that she could never acquire any other way in this world. You're not going to find salvation in any other place but in Christ Jesus. He's the only one who came to this world. He's the only one who was a sinless, perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And in eternity, uh, in glory, before anything was ever done or said, Christ stood as a lamb slain. And why is that? Because before they created man, God said we need a surety for man because we've already experienced the rebellion of the angels and it's not like some mystery that if we create man that he's probably going to do the same thing. Given the fact of this knowledge, the angels were in heaven, in glory, in the presence of God, and Satan still convinced a segment of them to rebel against God and lead a war against God in heaven. And so here we see uh, that Jesus was uh, 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 that Jesus took upon himself uh, the burden of being the surety for the sins of mankind. And so when Jesus is sacrificed at Calvary's cross, He's not just sacrificed uh, for his sins because he had none. Pilate stood and declared Jesus to be faultless before uh, before the Jews there in Jerusalem in the day that he was sacrificed. And uh, and he said, he, there is no fault in this man. And so Satan, by the lips of Pilate, declared Jesus to be sinless. And she says, I need this water that you're talking about. Because I've drank out the water out of this well a lot of times, and uh, I always end up needing to come back and get another drink. <laughs> That's because the water you can see, it doesn't it doesn't last very long, does it? You drink it, and all the physiological things happen. Your body processes it, and, and it allows you to stay hydrated, and all that kind of stuff, which you need, and it's all well and good. But for the soul. It ends up getting down there, doesn't it? But it comes on out. We need the water that doesn't come out that direction, but the other direction. We're going to touch on that in just a second. So Jesus looks at her. She she makes an acknowledgement that she she makes an acknowledgement that she needs this water. Now here's the problem that we see today. If you're here and you're lost, a lot of modern day evangelism is going to say just the acknowledgement that you need the water is all that's required. That wasn't sufficient, was it? You see, you can make the acknowledgement that you need it, but see, Jesus didn't die on the cross at Calvary for you to make an acknowledgement. He didn't die on the cross at Calvary so that it could be something that you could just take upon yourself. And so we're going to get into this here just for a second and, uh, and, and just tarry with me. Jesus looks at her and he says this. He says, go, call thy husband and come hither. Now this leaves the woman in a position of quandary, doesn't it? She's really in a state of, 
probably dismay if you really want to be honest if we really think about her, uh, what, how her response to this request would have been because here she is not having a, a, a husband uh, and, and we're going to touch on this in just, for, just for a few minutes. Here she is not having a husband and she makes the acknowledgement that she doesn't have a husband and Jesus commends her for the acknowledgement that she does not have a husband but then he condemns her, doesn't he? Uh, and you say, well, geez, that's a hard word to use. No, we have to experience the condemnation of God and we, we have to we have to know that we are not God's children before we can become God's children. See, that's the problem that you have today. Is they don't want anybody to to experience that. It's, I'll tell you this right now. I explained it this way in a chat thread where somebody was asking about this topic. And I said, let me ask you this question. Is it possible for you to ask someone of forgive for forgiveness if you don't even know what you did wrong <laughs> no you have to experience the wrongness don't you if i do something wrong against my wife she has to relay to me that i have done something wrong against her and then if i've got half a conscience i should feel some guilt or remorse toward that response, toward that uh, and then i should go to her and ask for forgiveness right uh, i mean that's the way that the human that the human existence works we don't work on precognition we don't work on things wherein we know the results we know the end before the beginning we don't we only know things through revelation and that is as they're revealed to us we respond to them, don't we? We we learn things through trial and error, don't we? <laughs> too often times we get too down, and I'll, I'll speak of this to myself. We get too down over failure, right? We failed instead of really looking at failure in this light. Failure means we just learned not the correct way to do something, right? Every time I'm building something or putting something together, it's inevitable. I will mess it up the first at least three or four times I try to put it together. At least the first three or four times before I figure out the correct way to do it. And then my wife will come in and she will say, well, did you read the instructions? And I'll be like, no, I'm a man. I don't need instructions. <laughs> to which I get chastised for that as well. <laughs> and, but listen, no chastening happens seems enjoyable for the present, but it works for the good of the future in the future, right? Uh, but um, but I'll get chastised for that. Well, that's why they send instructions. Well, they should be in English. <laughs> Pictures can only get me so far. So Jesus says, "Go and call thy husband," and she says, "I have no husband." And Jesus said, "Well." You said the right thing. He said, thou hast well said that you have no husband because thou hast had five husbands. Now, how is that possible that this one woman has had five husbands? Now, we generally will read Scripture and we will look at Scripture and we will apply it to the standards of the day in which we're living in. But that's not the correct standards to view it by, right? And you'll hear a lot of Christianity advocate abstinence as a, an, as a uh, own abstinence only as... The, uh, the, as to prevent abortion, right? That's generally where you hear that advocated. Well, let me just present it to you another way as to why you should abstain from that until marriage, right? And that's, we're going to touch on this. Because in our society, 
if 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 if, G, if somebody looks and says, "Well, you've been married five times," that means you've walked maybe down the aisle five times. You stood before a, a a preacher or a magistrate or somebody with a civil authority to declare you to be a a, a, a recognized union, right? A married couple, uh, and uh, and and that then that that fell apart for some reason. Uh, usually, money is one of the main things that happens, and and so uh, uh, we end up going our separate ways, and we get a divorce, uh, and uh, and then we try it all again. <laughs> but Jesus said, "You've had five husbands." Now, I'm not going to go down there and touch on this, but she's going to run into Samaria after this interaction, and she's going to say, come and see a man who told me all things I've ever done. (laughs) He's omniscient. (laughs) He knows everything about me, and I've never met him before in my life physically until today. When you come into the presence of God... If you don't have right standing with God, you're going to know you don't have right standing with God. He'll let he'll make it manifest, won't he? And then he says, and now and and the and whom and he whom thou hast now is not thy husband. So now he's not only saying he's not only saying that, now he's saying she's guilty of adultery, right? And he says, and, he, and, to, and to kind of summarize it all up and to kind of tie a bow on what he's saying, he says, in that thou hast said truly. Now look at this. We usually look at things and we say, you're being accusatory. You're being this. You're being that. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm saying that this is what the scriptures say as it pertains to these behaviors. Now, if you'll read a lot of theological, uh, a lot of theological commentary as it re- as it relates to marriages, uh, they will say that the marriages are mainly traditional things that take place, and there certainly are many traditional things that take place. We read about uh, Jesus uh, in uh, uh, in the in in the in the New Testament and uh, and the place where he turned the Water into wine. I believe it's chapter two in book in the book of John. Let me uh, let me uh, let me go over there really uh, really quickly and, uh, and and find that John uh, John chapter two. John chapter two, and uh, he's in Cana of Galilee. Uh, and, uh, and it's here that his mother makes the request. Uh, they have no wine for the marriage feast. Uh, and so Mary leans in to Jesus. At least this is the way I envision it. And she's kind of whispering to him. And, and she says, uh, they don't have any wine. And that's in the third verse. And, uh, and in the fourth verse, Jesus says, Jesus looks at his mother. And I don't advise anybody to do this. If you're a child and your mom still living, I don't advise you to respond to your mother this way. Jesus was God in the flesh, right? I believe he's okay to do that. She knew he was God in the flesh. But I would never advise you to look at your mother and say, woman. <laughs> it is not going to end well. <laughs> if your mother asks you a question and you respond to her, woman, that's not there. That Hey, that's a bad start. <laughs> Just... You go away. It's not going to go well. But Jesus looks at her and says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother saith unto the servants, Whatever he saith to, unto you, to, unto you, do it. 
Now, this little subset of scripture here with this interaction between Mary and Jesus, uh, just a, just a, a, a bit of a skew off here into outer space for a minute. This is the place, this is the only interaction in the Bible that the Catholic Church uses to justify Mary as being the mediator between God and man. We know that the, God, the mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus, the high priest that's in heaven, sit down at the right hand of the Father forever to make intercessions for our behalf. And so she says, whatever you do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And... Uh, and so we know that he's at a, a marriage feast, and so we know there's traditional elements involved in a marriage. I have a lot of Amish customers that I will go and count their inventory for. They'll have a, uh, a, an OPG dealership or an outdoor products dealership, you know, chainsaws, mowers, that kind of thing. And, uh, and whenever they have a marriage, whenever the Amish have a marriage, it's a week, it's a week-long ceremony for a marriage. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll get together and build a house for them. And so I always look at the Amish for all, you know, for everywhere we want to say their faults. There are a lot of areas where they get things way more right than we do. And so they'll actually provide a house for them. And, uh, uh, and they'll build it or they'll go in and they'll strip all the, you know, strip all the modern stuff out of it if that's what they're doing. Anyway, neither here nor there. But there's certainly traditional elements to the marriage or to a marriage. In every culture there's traditional elements. All the all back through time there's traditional elements as it pertains to marriage. But what's 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 right with man is often not right with God. And so when Jesus looks at her and he says that you have five husbands, he's not looking at her and saying you've walked down the aisle five times and had five divorces uh, and, uh, and, are, uh, and, and the one that you're with now, uh, he isn't even your husband. He's married to somebody else. He's not saying that. That's the look at it in the view that we look at it today. What he's saying is, is what we look at in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they t and they shall be one flesh one flesh not one heart that's the hollywood that's the hollywood stuff that's put together right uh, right what are we doing here today oh we're uniting two hearts no we're not <laughs> they're still two different people you go and look at Abraham and Sarah and, and when Sarah had sent Hagar into Abraham and he had conceived Ishmael uh, and all of a sudden it became a problem for Sarah uh, she goes to Abraham and says Abraham take care of this because because uh, Hagar and Ishmael are causing me problems and I'm paraphrasing all of this I don't want to read it all it'll bore you to death uh, but uh, but she says they, they're causing me some problems, and so in the in the cultural day and age they lived in, why would why would Sarah send Hagar into Abraham in the first place? It's because that she was her handmaid, she owned her, right? So anything that belonged to Hagar belonged to Sarah, and so all Sarah knew was that she was going to conceive a child, and, and so in her thought process, uh, it didn't necessarily mean it had to be through her; it could have been through Hagar, um, but God. God said, nope, that's incorrect. It's going to be through you, Sarah. And that's when Sarah laughed about it because Sarah, being in old age, thought, I'm way beyond childbearing years. But God said, you're going to do it. <laughs> you're going to do it. Isaac's going to be born by you. 
Was Hagar, was Hagar Abraham's wife? Well, I mean, it, he did have a child with her, didn't he? And this, I know we're all, we're like, oh, can you shut up? This is getting so uncomfortable. So let's look at this. And they too shall be one flesh, and they were both naked, a man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's look at Genesis chapter 24, verse 67, about Isaac, right, who we just talked about. And that's why we went with Isaac, the birth of Isaac. Uh, mother was Sarah, husband, or, or father was Abraham. And, and so we look at Isaac, chapter 24, verse 67, the book of Genesis. And Isaac brought, to, brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so we can look at tradition because what happens is oftentimes is they want to say one thing or the other is true. When the truth is both things could be true. They can have all the ceremonial things and all of those things can apply. That is absolutely true. But as it pertains to God, it's the consummation of the marriage that represents the bond of matrimony. That's why Jesus looked at her and said, you have five husbands. I don't think a lot of times in the day and age we live in, people really understand that's what Jesus is talking about. Even in our churches, I don't think they understand what Jesus is saying there when he says you have five husbands. Because obviously she didn't walk down, if we want to use today's analogy, obviously she didn't walk down the aisle with the man that she's with now, right? Because he looked at her and said, the one you're with now isn't yours. And so why did he say that? Because she had made the inference or she had made the request that she be given this living water. you got to understand you're a sinner before you can be a saint, right? <laughs> we're all born sinners. Every person. We have all, we're all like, all us like sheep have gone astray, uh, as Isaac said. Uh, everybody is born with, I don't know if you want to say the doctrine of original sin, but the sin of the father beginning at Adam is passed down through the fathers to the children. Uh, it's beginning at Adam and it'll continue right on up until the day that Christ comes back and then that will end. And when you say, well, at the end, when Jesus comes back and he puts an end to sin, how is it going to happen? Because the dead are raised first. And they are sown in corruption and they're raised in incorruption. And those that remain will be caught up and they'll be changed in an instant in a twinkling of an eye. And that will represent their death and they'll be given perfected glorified bodies that don't know sin. <laughs> as long as we're in these fleshly bodies, the Adamic nature lies within us. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to come to terms with that first. You've got to deal with that and you've got to get right with that. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, that's where he starts out at. Or that's where he goes to. She makes the request of that living water. Uh, and he says this, woman, uh, she says, well, we know that our fathers worship in Jerusalem. 
They worshipped in this mountain in Samaria uh, there, uh, and they worshipped in Jerusalem, is where they, and they say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. And Jesus is telling her this, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father, because you're going to worship at Mount Zion. Uh, you're going to worship at God's holy hill of faith, uh, and it's going to be established here in this world, and it's going to be established at Jerusalem, and it's going to proceed forth out from there, and I am the one and true lawgiver of that nation, and that nation will be a nation of priests, and if you know anything uh, about that, they always had to be washed before they could go in, didn't they? And so uh, I kind of skewed off there, I'm sorry. He says, but you worship, you know not what. But listen to this. This is experimental knowledge. This is something that you only get through experience. And so when you hear experimental knowledge, it means an experience. If you want to be saved, if you want the living water that Jesus talked about there with the woman at the well, you've got to have an experience with God. It means it means that the Holy Spirit, you experience the conviction that comes along with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it means that that conviction drove down deep, didn't it? Drove down to the heart. Drove down to the bowels. And in contrition, you ask for forgiveness. And asking for forgiveness, God bestows mercy, doesn't he? And bestowing mercy, God creates you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And being a new creature in Christ Jesus, you're found suitable and justified in the sight of God. Judicially innocent. Jesus said, the hour cometh and now is when the worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Right? You're going to worship Him in spirit and you're going to worship Him in truth. Can't be one or the other. <laughs> you can't worship Him in spirit and deny the truth and you can't worship Him in truth and deny the spirit. Both of them have to apply, don't they? The time comes when they will worship God in spirit and in truth, and the Father seeketh such to worship Him. That is honest worship, isn't it? That's sincere worship. That is worship of God that's worthy to God. And so we see here that he says, uh, he finishes up and he says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now let's get back up here. I just want to touch on the water for a minute, and then we'll close. That water that he talked to her about in the fourth chapter here, that living water that he said, uh, if you read over in the in the 110th Psalm in the seventh verse, that water is a is 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 looked at as a brook for a pilgrim that's traveling in a desert environment, right? Uh, and it says this, it says, He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore he shall lift up the head. Uh, and it's also looked at as a well, and it's so fitting that we would use this verse here, seeing as they're standing at Jacob's well. It's a well for local refreshment. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw out of the wells of salvation. Man, I tell you what, 
we need to draw some joy out of the wells of salvation in the day and the age that we're living in. I'm telling you, uh, there's not a lot of joy going on in the world right now. There's a lot of fear, <laughs> but there's not a lot of joy. Uh, but I believe that's going to turn. I believe that's going to turn. I believe everybody's been made to, to be afraid and not unnecessarily uh, without justification. But uh, uh, but there's a fate worse than death, isn't there, my friend? And today, if you, uh, if you don't have the Lord and you die, then you'll experience a fate worse than death uh, for sure. Uh, that's an, that, that water creates an inward well, which we read about in the 14th verse here, uh, that whosoever drinketh of that water would have within himself a well of water spring bringing up into everlasting life. And thou, and that inward well, that aquifer uh, that would be placed there within you, in the spirit, in the heart, in the bowels, will let you know, won't it? And will testify. Does anybody get, the, does anybody get butter, butterflies in their stomach whenever they feel impressed to testify? You know why that is, don't you? Because the heart of man is not the aortic pump that lies in his chest. (laughs) It's in his bowels. When they say listen to your gut, what you really should say is listen to your heart. That aquifer that's placed there is going to become a river uh, with the uh, with the aid of the Holy Spirit uh, upon baptism uh, in the last day and that great day of the feast. Jesus stood, John chapter seven, verse thirty-seven through thirty-nine, uh, and he cried, saying, "If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink." Uh, there is the offer again, isn't it? The same offer he offered the woman at the well. He said, "If you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked, and I would have given you a drink of living water." And here. He says, come to the river and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Proceeding from his heart. <laughs> that that recreated, uh, that renewed heart that God, uh, that God places within us uh, will, co- will come forth living waters. And wherever that river goes, life follows it, doesn't it, Sister Frances? I've been in some tremendous services when the water was deep. And the effect of that water was really obvious. Ezekiel 47 and 9 is the last verse we're going to use. We're going to close with this verse. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the water shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters, uh, because these waters come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. There is only life in that water. There's no death. Uh, We'll experience corporal death in this life, bodily death. We'll experience it. But if you get saved, you will never experience spiritual death. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, it says, "In the book of Hebrews, it says, it's once appointed unto man to die, and after this, the judgment." When you draw your last breath on life, or draw your last breath on earth, you'll know immediately. <laughs> Where your home is at. 
the soul of man ascendeth upward to God who gave it. That woman at the well got a drink of living water that day. And she ran into Samaria. And from, and from her, uh, from that one aquifer of that woman, flew, flowed a river of living water that was so strong that uh, there were many more saved that day because of the water that flowed from her. And so in this you got to understand, we look for everything to come out of the pulpit today. And it got, it, it's not all going to come out of a pulpit. We need the water to flow deep in the world that we live in today. Uh, we need God's children to testify of the goodness of God. We need them to get up and to praise God for the goodness that He shows toward us. His providence that He bestows on us. And with that, I'll close. If you're here today and you're lost, you need to be saved. Brother Williams.